Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with Sam Hamburg, who's a clinical psychologist based out of Chicago, Illinois, and who specializes in marriage counseling and couples issues. Sam has spent his career working with spouses and couples to help them deal effectively with marital difficulties and to improve the quality of their relationships. In addition to his clinical practice, Sam has written two books on marriage. The first, Will Our Love Last, is an analysis of what factors really matter when it comes to a truly happy and satisfying marriage. And the Newlyweds book, which walks through 10 helpful strategies for starting marriage off on the right foot. These are the two best books I've ever read on the psychology of relationships and marriage. As I mentioned in the interview, I don't think anyone should get married without reading Sam's first book, Will Our Love Last? And every newly married couple should be gifted the Newlyweds book. They're just that important. Without further introduction, let's get into it. Sam Hamburg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. If you asked your average married couple what the secret to a happy marriage is, you'd probably hear things like honest communication, commitment, hard work, stuff like that. But you begin your excellent book, Will Our Love Last, with a very different argument. You say, the message of this book, a message rather different from what you will find in other books about marriage, is that the key to a happy marriage is picking the right person in the first place, someone with whom you are deeply compatible. I want to talk about this idea of compatibility, but first, tell us why the usual suspects of communication, commitment, and hard work aren't actually as related to happiness in marriage as people imagine or maybe want to believe. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's start with communication. Um, most of the time when couples uh, come in to see me uh, and they have a marriage problem, they say we have a communication problem. The idea that marriage problems are communication problems has really embedded itself in the public mind. Uh, but when you think about it, that's not the problem. Think about yourself trying to communicate with somebody else about something that you two disagree with, say a political issue like abortion or gun control. You're on one side of the issue, the other person's on the other side. You understand what, what each other are saying. You don't have a communication problem. What you don't understand is how they can possibly think and feel the way they do. And likewise, with marriage problems, when, when married people say we have a communication problem, what they really mean is they have a failure of understanding despite adequate communication. And they have that failing of understanding because they're just too different as people to understand how the other can possibly think and feel the way they do in various ways. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really about understanding, not necessarily communication. And, and as That's you point right. out in the book, there, there's even research that suggests people who come to therapy saying, I don't communicate well with my spouse, they, it turns out they communicate perfectly well in other areas of their life, in work, and <laughs> yes, in other relationships. Exactly. So there's, there is research on that. Right. And as far as um, commitment is concerned, I mean, I think we all have enough uh, experience in relationships to know that while commitment is really important uh, in keeping 
relationships going, uh, they don't guarantee happiness. Uh, it's, it's great if a couple with problems come in and they say they're highly committed to the marriage. That makes it easier for me as a therapist. But uh, there you go. They're highly committed to the relationship, but at the same time, they're desperately unhappy. And uh, as far as hard work is concerned, uh, I would just uh, ask anybody to poll anyone they know who is happily married and ask them, is your marriage hard work? And I'll, I'll bet you big money that they'd say, no, it isn't hard work. I mean, when you think about it, uh, is your relationship with your best friend hard work? Person you like to hang out with the most? No, of course not. And my brief definition of lasting love, conjugal love, is best friendship plus sex. So that's not going to be hard work. Yeah, you know, it's, it, that's so interesting because I, I mean, I've only been married for five years, and and but I, it's been long enough that I, I have this this kind of uh, quasi guilty feeling where I, whenever people, when that topic of hard work and marriage, when people talk about how hard their marriage is, like I, I end up kind of thinking to myself like gosh, you know, it's, it's really, my wife, like, it's so easy. And we talk about that all the time. And I've heard that from other like select few couples we know who do genuinely seem to have a, a pretty happy marriage that they, they have this kind of like kind of sheepish grin when the topic comes up and they say, I feel like I'm not supposed to say this, but it feels really easy actually. Right. right. Well, there, but for the grace of God, go we, you know, it, it isn't <laughs> uh, if you're with the right person, it's again, it's just as easy as it is with whoever your best and oldest same-sex friend is. Okay, so if the secret to a happy marriage is choosing the right person in the first place, someone with whom you're, as, as in the terminology you use, deeply compatible, let's talk about what that means exactly. Tell us about the, th you kind of outlined three major dimensions of compatibility. Can you walk us through those and what those are? Sure, uh, sure. So I, I um, came up with this um, idea actually long before it occurred to me to write a book and and I uh, would question couples about these dimensions way back uh, I moved to Chicago in 94 I I wrote the book in 97 I started it so I was doing it way long ago anyway the three um, dimensions are first of all the practical dimension that is uh, a variety of things uh, that the couple have to agree upon on a day-to-day -day basis. So number one, uh, gender roles. So that is how are labor and power divided in the relationship, given that one is a man and one is a woman in most marriages. Uh, the next component is everything having to do about money. So spending priorities. What do you think it's worth it to spend money on? Used cars versus new cars, uh, furniture versus trips, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So spending priorities, uh, debt tolerance, risk tolerance, savings orientation, and spending style. By spending style, I mean if you need a new toaster, do you read consumers' reports and uh, read all the ratings on the internet of, about toasters, or do you just go to Target and buy a toaster? So everything having to do with money is the second component. The third component is maintenance. Uh, this is where the neatness, cleanness stuff comes in, but um, also other things. How do you... Uh, 
take care of your physical bodily selves? Are you health food people or fast food people? Are you heavy partiers or not? Uh, do you like to exercise and keep fit or not? So how do you take care of your physical bodily self? And also, how do you take care of the things that are yours? So if you still actually handle DVDs and CDs, are you scrupulous to handle them by their edges or do you handle them like Frisbees? Do you put the oil in your car's engine when it needs it or do you just kind of forget to? So that's maintenance. How do you take care of yourselves and your stuff and your surroundings? The um, fourth component is leisure time. That is, what do you like to do in your time off and how do you like to do it? By how do you like to do it, I mean alone just by yourself or the two of you together without anybody else or the two of you with, say, another couple or the two of you with a big group or each other's families, etc. So what do you like to do in your time off and how do you like to do it? And the fifth um, component has to do with managing the boundary between your family and and your families of origin. Uh, whether couples realize it or not, uh, as soon as they say, I do, they have become a new family, separate from their families of origin. And when whether they know it or not, at that point what they have to do is transfer their primary loyalty, uh, some of it anyway, away from their family of origin and to this new family that they've created right at the altar there. And uh, another way uh, of saying that is that you have to build a kind of a privacy wall around this new little family that you've made when you've gotten married. And the uh, wall is uh, constructed of two things. It's constructed of the information that you don't give to these other players unless the two of you agree, and the commitments that you don't make, whether it's to... Uh, go to Sunday dinner or finance some uh, family member's uh, college education, the commitments that you don't make unless the two of you agree. Uh, some families of origin make it easy for us in our new family to maintain that boundary. Some families of origin tend to be kind of intrusive and uh, don't necessarily want to respect that boundary. So how do you manage that boundary? So those are the five components of the... Um, practical dimension. And then there's the wavelength dimension. And um, the, the key question about the wavelength dimension is, again, talking about a heterosexual couple, if your partner was of your own sex, would they be one of your very best friends? So who are our very best friends? Our very best friends are the people who, when we talk to them, we don't have to explain ourselves. They get it. And not only do they get it, they affirm it. They approve of what we said and they approve of us for having said it. And likewise, when they speak to us, uh, we get it and we affirm them. And so what are the characteristics of people with whom we have this very high level of mutual understanding? Well, number one, broadly speaking, they share our values but they don't only share our values. They share our overall take on things, our reaction to things in the world. So whether it's uh, some item in the news or uh, a movie we've seen 
or a person we've separately met at a party, uh, I know that whatever my reaction was to whatever that was, my very best friend's reaction will be the same. I call that your personal truth. Uh, the next component of uh, the wavelength dimension is spiritual orientation, by which I don't mean what professed religion anybody is, but how do you answer the basically the two basic questions of the book of Job, uh, which, uh, of course, is part of the uh, Hebrew scriptures and therefore part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And uh, the book of Job is about why do bad things happen? And so question number one is, do bad things happen for reasons or not? And uh, question number two is, if they do happen for reasons, uh, are they reasons that we mortals can know or not? Now, Job's answers, uh, Job, a very righteous man to whom terrible things happened, uh, Job's answers were, yes, of course things happen for reasons. God is up there and he's good. Job's answer to the second question was, no, we mortals cannot know his ways. We just have to have faith that he's good and has it all planned out. Uh, I think that whatever somebody's answers are to those two questions constitutes their spiritual orientation. Uh, the next component of the um, wavelength dimension is sense of justice by uh, really what I mean is, are you a Republican or a Democrat? What do you think about uh, income inequality? What do you think about taxes? What do you think about Trump? Uh, I'm a believer in speed dating. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before. Mm. I'm a believer in speed dating. I mean, look, you know if somebody's attractive to you, in a split second. And my claim is, uh, in a speed dating situation, your first question should be to the person on the other side of the table, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And if they say the other party from yours, you move on to the next person because their overall outlook, uh, their overall philosophy of life is going to be so different from yours that you're just uh, not going to approve of each other very much. Uh, so, sense of justice. And the uh, fifth component of uh, the wavelength dimension is uh, shared primary concern. Uh, what I mean by that is this. For most parents, certainly the overwhelming majority of parents who have kids, uh, their kids are a shared primary concern. It's uh, what their life revolves around very largely. And uh, you know as a parent that you plot your own life trajectory very much in terms of your kids. So most couples who have kids, they have that as a shared primary concern. Now, some people uh, have an, an, another one in addition to that. So my oldest friend, I knew him when he was five years old, he wanted to be a doctor. And he became a doctor and he married a doctor. So their shared primary concern was being doctors together. Uh, but it could be anything uh, for a buddy of mine back out in New Jersey and his wife. It was their sailboat. For a couple who I knew back in college in the 1960s when we were all hippies and counterculture and so forth, these two people wanted to become millionaires. And they did become millionaires. And that was their shared primary concern. So 
those are the components of the wavelength uh, dimension. And uh, the sexual dimension uh, has several components. First of all, uh, your level of just sexual interest and preoccupation, that varies a lot uh, among people. Uh, there are some people who, uh, again, within a completely normal ballpark of of sexual interest and functioning, they're more interested and would like to have sex uh, lots of times a week. And some people who are completely normal also don't want to do that that often. So level of sexual preoccupation and interest, um, comfort with sexuality, which is distinct from that. Uh, just how comfortable are you are. You could be very preoccupied with sex, but not comfortable with it at all. And uh, the other uh, component of the sexual uh, dimension is sexual style, which has to do with, well, what do you think sex is and what do you think it's for and and uh, what kind of experience is it? Is it uh, something that's just fun or exciting? Is it something spiritual? Is it something that is primarily an expression of love? And and uh, how you think about what sex is has something to do with how you do it. And, and people's sexual styles have to mesh, I think, for them to have a, a satisfactory sex life. So those are the three dimensions of compatibility as I see them. Wow. Thank you for going through that. You know, one of the things that there are two things primarily that really drew me to your book and your work and your way of thinking about um, marriage and, and relationships. And and I think it's evident in hearing you talk about these two things, which is that A, you're you're incredibly non-judgmental. You just sort of lay out in your experience these are the things that seem to correlate with either a happy marriage or an unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. And then and then also you're incredibly systematic. About the, I mean, just the way you kind of break these down, you got the three and then you got the different components of each three. And it, it strikes me, and I want to get your take on this, that one of the, one of the biggest, in my experience, I'm not, a, I'm not a relationship or marriage therapist per se, but obviously relationship issues come up in any kind of therapy. Sure. I think. And one of the things that always strikes me about people who are in obviously unhappy marriages is it's incredibly clear that they did virtually no systematic thinking before they got into their marriage, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me because there's arguably no more consequential decision you'll make in your life than whom you choose to marry, right? So why why do you think there, why is that? Why do we have such a resistance to thinking systematically about marriage? Nick, I wouldn't put it quite that way. I, I think people are systematic about thinking about it, but they don't think about it in the right way. They don't uh, apply the right set of criteria. Let's put it that way. They don't apply the right set of criteria to their systematic thinking. So the way it works uh, for most people, uh, within a context, let's say this right out, of tremendous pressure to get married. There's tremendous societal pressure to get married. So people are, are in some at some point in a hurry to get married. Uh, but what people do, and, and it's perfectly understandable, is number one, they see that they meet somebody who is attractive. And that's where it's got to be. That's where it's got to begin. So they find somebody who's physically attractive, sexually attractive to them. And then they discover that uh, the person uh, meets their demographic characteristics uh, for a mate in terms of, uh, 
ethnicity, um, uh, educational level, uh, occupational attainment, so forth. So they, they meet their demographic criteria, which is also an important thing. And finally, after getting to know them for a while, they come to realize that this person who they're thinking of marrying is a person of good character. And that, that looks like a match to most people. That makes sense. So, and, and the thing is that uh, everything feels right because they're in the romantic phase of love, uh, where, uh, which is basically a mutual affirmation steamroller um, which is powered by the very high level of uh, sexual energy in a new relationship. So uh, their partner looks right, uh, uh, has the right demographic characteristics, is a good and fine and decent person, and overall the relation feels right because they're in love and everything seems fine. Uh, so they get married. And then what happens is that uh, sooner or later, that very high level of sexual energy runs down a little. It doesn't, you know, plummet down to zero. I've been married, you know, 40-some years. <laughs> hasn't. But it goes down just below the threshold above which total mutual affirmation is, is guaranteed and automatic. And at that point, every couple, whether they know it is uh, or not, Every couple are faced with the question, what really do we have to affirm about each other? And that's when they start to scratch their heads and say, hey, wait a minute, why why isn't this as wonderful as I expected it would be, given that I did my due diligence? So I think that's what happens. Yeah, so it's not, you're right, so it's not exactly that they're not being systematic, but they're they're kind of over-indexing on just a couple of the factors that, that, and it sounds like you would want them to, A, consider a much wider range of factors like you enumerated in the sort of compatibility right. uh, sections. But then also, it, it sounds like timing is a big issue, that it's, it's almost impossible to think carefully about these things when you're in the middle of that sort of, um, the, the surge of romantic sexual attraction in the very beginning. Well, that's, that's the thing. And, you know, I wrote Will Our Love Last as a, um, as a premarital book, but once it got published and, and people wrote me letters and emails around it, I realized that premarital people were not the most responsive people uh, to my book. It was people whose relationships hadn't worked out and they somehow came across my book and then they understood or they were engaged and at the last minute they just backed out of it despite everyone else saying all systems are go, go for it. Uh, and then they find my book and they realize what was wrong, which they hadn't quite been able to put their finger on before. Mm. Well, let's, that's a nice transition to, I want to, I ask you some questions about your second book, your, your more recent book, which is called The Newlyweds Book, right. uh, 10 Helpful Hints for Your Happy Marriage. And I, I love these two books because they they really want uh, that your first book, Will Our Love Last, this is the book, if I were dictator of the world, no one should be allowed to get married unless they read your book. <laughs> Everyone should I'd have agree. to read that. And then, I'd agree. <laughs> your second, the second book 
is the book everybody should be given as a wedding present. Like everyone's registry should automatically be populated with this book, I think. Right. I, <laughs> uh, because uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, um, I wrote the book because uh, I, I do think that, that uh, people can, okay, compatibility is not a matter of either or, it's a matter of more or less. And, and people have marital uh, issues of various kinds, not just because they're lacking in compatibility, but because they just uh, don't know certain things about being married. And, and even after being a long time, they don't know certain things about being married. So I just wanted to uh, give newly married people uh, some ideas of things that would be helpful that I think I know about marriage. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it really lives up to that. It, it, it's sometimes I think marriage is a little like, it's like uh, driving a car, you know, it's something we all do all the time. That's really important, but it's kind of shocking how, how little your average person knows about cars and how they work. And it's not right. that we all need to be mechanics or, or be able to build cars, but you know, there, there, there's, there's a few things that if you kind of know about your engine and, and how your car works that right. can really make the driving experience a lot, a lot better. Right. Um, so let's kind of, I'm not going to, you've got, there are 10 kind of, I mean, hints almost uh, kind of downplays the, I think the importance of these things. They're yeah. much more than hints. Um, it, so we can't go through all of them, but I, I do want to go through a few um, sure. and, and kind of get your take and, and have you elaborate a little bit. So yeah. your, your first one, and, and this is literally number one in the book, is don't leave your sex life to chance. Yeah. Now, I, I want you to expound on this a little bit, but first, I, I'm just curious, why did you start the book off with this tip in particular? Well, that has to do with the origins of the book. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Tom Aldworth, uh, for about 40 years, 35 years or so, was a Franciscan friar. And so Tom would perform marriages. And uh, what he would do is uh, he would ask the assembled company, the people who'd come to the wedding, uh, to give the newlywed couple their advice on how to be married. Because, you know, he wasn't married, uh, uh, so he didn't know what to say. Uh, and and so they say things like, you know, work hard at your marriage, stuff like that. And it occurred to me that the last thing you're going to likely hear somebody make a suggestion about uh, in a public wedding ceremony is sex. So I thought, well, let me start right there with sex. So that's why I put it as number one. And uh, the whole idea of uh, of that chapter, that chapter is a deconstruction of the concept of spontaneity as applied to sex. We all believe, uh, even I've believed, uh, that the best, most wonderful, intense sex we've had uh, in our lives has been spontaneous. But if you look at it just a little bit carefully, you realize it wasn't spontaneous at all. both of your expectations were all lined up. You were on the same page. You both had the same sense of what would happen at the end of the date or at the beginning of the date. It wasn't a surprise. Uh, so it wasn't spontaneous. It felt spontaneous, but it wasn't. Uh, but most of us, the vast majority of us, think that, that 
this wonderful sex was spontaneous. And so then we get married, and then we uh, uh, sleep in the same bed every night. But then the question is, well, why should tonight be the night that we do it rather than tomorrow night? And wouldn't it be easier to maybe watch another TV show or flip through a catalog? Because sex is work. Sex demands um, physical effort and mental attention. So it's it's work. And there are lots of easier things, strangely enough, to do. So I think people uh, need to be mindful uh, that the best sex that you can have is actually uh, premeditated and uh, planned out a little. And you have to be as intentional uh, in maintaining the sexual aspect of your relationship as you are in maintaining any other aspect of your marital relationship. Yeah, it's great. I came away reading that chapter with the, the thought kind of the, the summary thought in my mind was that if you want your sex life to feel spontaneous, you have to be far more kind of structured and intentional about it than you That's right. would think. That's right. Exactly. That's a nice way to put it, Nick. So let's move on to um, number two here, which is actually your, your helpful hint number five. And I, I want to get back to this because you, you alluded to it in, in the first part of our conversation. But the tip is yeah. to maintain your wall of privacy. Now, I, yeah. I just think this is huge because arguably one of the probably the biggest complaint I hear from my clients about their spouses, it's, it's certainly in the top five. I often hear that essentially the complaint is my spouse gossips with their family about me and our relationship. Yeah. And yeah, it really just seems like such a huge problem. So tell yeah. us about this kind of what motivated this, this rule or this tip of maintain your wall of privacy and, and what it kind of looks like more specifically. Well, it, it's just uh, what motivated it is that it, it comes up so much. Uh, it's again, some of our families are pretty good at, at giving us space and, and not prying and not uh, putting their two cents in when we have to make a decision. But lots of families are a little more intrusive. And it's, it's very complicated, complicated to navigate that. Um, that chapter is the longest chapter in the book, simply because that stuff is so complicated. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I kind of stated the problem in Will Our Love Last? but didn't talk about how you how you deal with it and so the uh the that chapter chapter 5 is is uh, uh kind of the continuation of that part of will our love less okay so that's the problem this is what you do and uh you have to be real careful that um you present a united front to the rest of the world and uh, that if you for example uh let's say your mother has, uh, let's say my mother has invited us to Sunday dinner. Um, but, uh, but Sue, my wife really has some important things to do. Uh, and she'd rather not do it. I do not say to my mother, mom, you know, I'd really love to come to dinner, but Sue, uh, has stuff to do so he can. No, that's not how you right. do it. I mean, if the two of you made a decision, not to come to Sunday dinner, then I, Sam, have to own that too. It was us, the two of us, who made that decision. So I say to my mother, Mom, uh, we've decided that this Sunday is not a good day. Do you see what I'm saying? You, you, you yeah. present a united front. 
And uh, the other, I think, important um, point in, in that chapter, the second one, is that relationships between various members of uh, the f- extended families and the couple, they have to be direct. Nobody can be a go-between. Nobody, uh, if your mother has a problem with your wife, uh, your word to your mother is, take it up with Sue. Don't talk to me about it. You cannot be in the middle of these things. People have to sort out their relationships with somebody else, with that somebody else, and not try to put any third party in in between. So I, I guess those are the two major messages of of chapter five. Yeah. The other one I love just because it's so direct is, and I really, I have a hard time thinking of an exception to this, but unless I suppose you, you mutually agree on it, but you say, if you're having some kind of a dispute or problem with your spouse, do not discuss it with your family. Oh, you like, can't. I, I can't. Like how many, there's, I can't, when I think of my clients, there's so many issues that would be resolved simply by just adhering to this rule as if yeah. it was gospel. I, I mean, my goodness, you know, uh, our family's opinion of our spouse is to some degree uh, determined by w- what we tell them about our spouse and what we tell them we think about our spouse. And uh, if you want your family to like your partner, then uh, you don't complain to them about some dispute, that's probably going to resolve one way or the other because it's going to resolve and you and your partner are going to like each other, but your family's just going to remember what a pain in the neck your partner was. And they'll that'll stay with them, and you don't want that. So, uh, you know, we have lots of friends. Most of us have friends, other people. There are lots of therapists in the phone book. Uh, talk to these other people, but do not talk to your family about your partner. Don't. Yeah, it's great. Okay, let's move on to hint number seven, which is childproof your sexual relationship, parentheses, and the rest of your relationship. So I love this one because yeah. I, I think it's I think it's somewhat common wisdom that that once once you're married and if you have kids. You, you do need to be intentional about, um, you know, you have to make time for a date night, you know, so y- you can spend time together. You have to send the kids off to the grandparents for a while so you can have, you can have sex without worrying about some kid barging. Yes. Yeah. But, but I think what's fascinating to me about it, the parentheses on this is really fascinating to me in the rest of your relationship, because it, it really emphasizes something that is, I think, just really countercultural in a lot of ways, which is that when it comes to a marriage, it's very, it's dangerous to make a marriage child focused. Um, so, and, and that, those are my words, but tell me a little bit more. I'll let you kind of explain this, this tip and why it's so important. Well, it can't, it can't be exclusively child focused or child focused all the time. And it doesn't need to be. I mean, uh, you know, people, uh, I guess, of of your generation and, and even people who are, you know, older, but not quite as old as I am, somehow feel that, that uh, they have to do every single thing that they can possibly do to make sure their child is going to be happy and successful. They don't, they don't 
just let the kid alone. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, there were no such things as play dates. We just go out to the street and play, you know, and, and, and the idea that, uh, uh, your kid, that you have to witness every one of your kids' baseball games or soccer games, because if you don't, they'll be deprived. Well, I think that's nuts. Uh, the kids don't need that from you. They may not even want that from you. And don't you have better things to do with your, your time? The, the main underlying um, rationale for this is the fact, which has been demonstrated by a lot of research, is that kids are resilient. My goodness. Uh, kids can get over all sorts of terrible adversity and grow up just, just fine. So if you miss some of your kids' soccer games and instead uh, spend an hour uh, having a coffee with your spouse, uh, that's better for everybody and certainly better for you and your spouse. And, and uh, the kid will not be traumatized by that. I think that's real important. And, you know, when I, when I was a kid, we lived in a, a small apartment, uh, basically one bedroom and then part of the kitchen was cut off to make a, another bedroom. And when my parents' bedroom door was uh, closed, we didn't even knock. <laughs> we didn't even knock. Uh, and and so it, it just uh, kind of flabbergasts me when I hear about uh, couples allowing their kids to just barge into their bedroom at any point and get into bed with them and sleep with them and... Uh, what it, it's it strikes me as chaos and and no way to conduct uh, an intimate relationship between two adults. How can you do it with with all that interference? So that's that's uh, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. That yeah, you, it, you know it, it it strikes and this is one of the reasons your work resonates. I think with me with my experiences, um, my own personal experiences, but then also a lot of the what I hear working with clients and, and hearing about their relationships is. There's some, I don't know what the the opposite metaphor for killing two birds with one stone is, but <laughs> there's this way in which when when couples become almost neurotically obsessed with their kids and raising their mm -hmm. kids, mm -hmm. there's the dual problem of, A, it's probably actually detrimental to your kids to be that focused and kind of child obsessed. And it tends to harm the, the relationship between a right. couple. Which then harms the kids, so, right? Yeah, exactly. It creates a vicious cycle. So that's why I, this number number seven, this childproof your sexual relationship and the rest of your relationship, this is so powerful. I think because it it has incredible knock on effects. If you're able to do that, if you're able to kind of create healthier boundaries between you and your kids, not only will it probably help your kids, yeah. but it sounds like your your own relationship as well. Yeah. You know, what I say to couples, and I really believe this, is that any third party, any third party, even a well-intentioned third party, is an interference in uh, somebody's intimate relationship and in two people's relationship. Whether that uh, third party is a parent uh, of one of the spouses or a kid or even a therapist, even a us therapists, when we introduce ourselves as marital therapists into a couple, we are interfering 
in their relationship. Now, we're hoping that this interference will ultimately be good, but we have to be honest with ourselves that we are violating a boundary mm. and with their permission, but we're, we're going into an intimate space that ordinarily we should not be going into. And, and our kids should not be going into that space insofar as we can pre- prevent them from doing so. I have a, that's, that's so fascinating to me. I, I have a little pet theory that one of the reasons so much of these things are, are hard for couples, like, like having, you know, creating kind of independence from, from your kids and um, maintaining the wall of privacy and it, all these things, I, I sort of feel like people are almost afraid of just plain old intimate space with their spouse there's something about they did like in the absence of that all that romantic love at the very beginning of things people feel kind of insecure and maybe this goes back to the point of your book which is that people are just not equipped it seems like to to do marriage like, well so many of the skills and confidence just don't seem to be there so i don't know what do you, what do you think of that well look um if if couples um aren't compatible enough to be able to give each other a sense of companionship, then they can become lonely in the relationship, in which case they'll appeal to their kids for companionship of some kind and Uh and therefore allow the kids uh, to uh, just come through that gate uh, because it's kind of lonely in there without them. So I think that that's part of what's going on too. Right. I love that word commit. You know, so many, it, it, it describes the, what I see so often is uh, I see couples who are partners. They're like business partners, but they're not companions. Yeah. They're not companions. Well, again, they're not best friends. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, okay. Let's uh, my, the final tip I want to kind of highlight and have you, you talk a little about is, perhaps the most intriguing, both linguistically and philosophically, <laughs> which is have Rachmonis. So tell me about this yeah, word, Rachmonis, um, okay. and why it's so important. For... Yeah. Rachmonis uh, is a Yiddish word. That Yiddish is the language of the European Jews that I, I grew up hearing a lot. And, uh, and it's a mixture of uh, German and Hebrew. And that particular word, Rachmonis, Rahmanis comes from the Hebrew word Rahman, which is, uh, you know, when Muslims say Allah the Great and the Merciful, uh, Akbar and Rahman. It's the same word in, in Arabic as it is in Hebrew, merciful. And uh, my belief is that it's really important for us to be a merciful judge of our partner because we are so powerful as judges of our partner because they love us and we love them. So uh, we have a lot of authority there and we have to be careful about that. And the way to be careful about that is for us to admit something that is very hard for us to admit, but I think is necessarily true, that whatever we see our partner doing, our spouse doing, no matter how irritating it is, how messed up we think it is, that is, at that moment, 
our partner's best attempt to get through this perplexing life with some sense of meaning and self-esteem. Again, uh, that may be, from our point of view, a lousy attempt, but they're trying their best. We all are always trying our best. And, and we really have to remember that uh, about our partner, especially when they're doing something that we think is all wrong in one way or the other. Yeah, it's great. It's very, um, it's very Aristotelian, you know, this idea that all, all men aim for the good. Like we're all on some kind of core level, we're all trying to do what we think is, is right or will lead to us um, being happy. And I think so. It's a hard, I, I, it's a hard thing though that. to remind ourselves of that though, especially yeah. in the context of a well, especially you know, when you're, Yeah. You know, especially when you're uh, trying to concentrate and your spouse is playing the record player too loud, which, you know, I do. And uh, Sue gets angry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but that's, but we're all trying our best. I'm trying my best at that point and she's trying her best and uh, we get into a spat about it and we have to finally remember that. And I can't help but, th you know, part of that is probably just, um, you know, empathy is to some extent, it's a skill, something you have to kind of work on. But but it also seems to go back to your your bigger point in, in Will Our Love Last about the importance of compatibility and, and this deep understanding, really knowing, feeling in your bones who the other person is. Because if you can do that, right. it's, a, it's a whole lot easier to kind of offer that, that grace or, or mercy to our, to our spouse or partner, I think. I guess so. I guess I think you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. All right, Sam. Well, thank you so much. This has been just really, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been illuminating for sure. I hope it's um, helpful to a lot of people. So we've talked about um, your two books, which are Will Our Love Last? And then the Newlyweds book, 10 Helpful Hints for Your Happy Marriage. Is there another place? Where can people go to learn more about you or your work or your books? Well, I have, I have a website, which is um, uh, my name, samrhamburg.com. And on the homepage... Uh, there's a little picture of each of the books and uh, you can click on them and it'll get you to the Amazon page for them. Now, the Newlyweds book is only available as an ebook, only available through Amazon as an ebook. The other book is available as a, as a paperback book. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.